Welcome to this edition of Development Matters, the London International Development Centre podcast series. I'm Anjuli Borgogna, Communications Officer at the LIDC. These podcasts look at interdisciplinary approaches to international development issues, and today we will be discussing global mental health. According to the World Health Organization, a quarter of the world's population will be affected by a mental disorder at some point in their lives. And in lower middle income countries, up to 85% of people with severe mental disorders receive no treatment. Aid spending on health in developing countries remains focused on the big three, the diseases HIV and AIDS, malaria and TB, and mental health is frequently overlooked. Many issues experienced in developing countries, such as fleeing conflict, famine or losing family members to disease, can have a significant effect on mental health. In this episode, we are going to be exploring the relationship between poverty and mental health, treatment in humanitarian settings, local understandings of mental health in developing countries, and how we can measure and evaluate progress. In the studio with me, I have Dr. Daniela Fur, who is Assistant Professor in Mental Health Systems at the Centre for Global Mental Health at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and Dr. Aminia Kulucci, Senior Lecturer at Middlesex University, Department of Psychology, and guest lecturer at the Centre for Psychiatry at Queen Mary University of London. In 2014, Armenia also produced and directed a documentary on human rights violations towards the mentally ill in Indonesia. Daniela, Armenia, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, good morning. Thank you for having us. So to begin, what exactly do we mean by mental health and why does mental health deserve more attention in development? So mental health includes our emotional, um, psychological and social well-being. Many people experience mental health problems which affect their thinking, their mood and their behavior. And those mental disorders are classified in a classification system, which is called the International Classification of Diseases. And there are many categories of mental disorders, such as mood disorders, personality disorders, substance use disorders, to name but a few. So mental health has been a neglected topic in global development, but the importance of it has finally been acknowledged in the Sustainable Development Goals. And it's crucial for development for a variety of reasons. So firstly, there's a growing burden of disease, um, with depression expected to be the second largest cause of burden of disease by 2020. Secondly, we know that the most people um, with mental health conditions live in low and middle income countries where less than 10% of the population receive treatment at all. So in itself, um, mental health is a prerequisite for physical health and it's strongly interlinked with other development factors such as poverty, work and um, economic growth. So it doesn't really come to a surprise that the relationship between uh, mental health and poverty is a cyclical one. So poverty increases the risk um, of mental disorders and having a mental disorders increases the risk of descending into poverty. Thank you. Is there anything you would like to add? Well, I think something to stress out about the mental health in addition to what Dan- Daniela said was that also the WHO, the World Health Organization, points out how uh, mental health is a state of well-being. So often when we talk about mental health, we talk about mental disorders, but there is something about what actually is mental health itself in terms of really allowing people to kind of reaching their kind of full potentials as human beings, which is everything from being able to work and be productive, contributing to the community, their family, their society, and, and uh, able, be able to 
coping with the normal stresses in life. So that's what we actually want to achieve when we think about mental health, having people be in a condition where independently from their age, their, their, um, their gender, their level of economic status, uh, their education, they actually are able to fulfill that. So that's a kind of our, our objective. As Daniela mentioned, uh, we know that people, not everybody is, is mentally healthy, and it's a dimension where we uh, have to think about is a biopsychosocial kind of aspect. There is a different aspect of human being uh, that can be kind of dis- come out disturbed to some degree. And uh, um, when we look in a developing country, the issue is that uh, the, this kind of disorders are very prevalent, but there is very little happening. And what happens is mainly kind of taking place within hospital. So basically at the kind of level, there is very little in terms of prevention and the kind of services are very inadequate. Now, it's important we talk about mental health to will also look in terms of, of what we offer in Western countries, it's not necessarily ideal and other. So if you think about what mental health is and, and reaching the kind of state of well-being, um, I don't know much really we are doing that within Western society. Obviously, when you go in countries that are underfunded, like countries where I work in, in Asia, uh, 1% of the health budget goes in mental health services. Now, it's not much better, in the, I want to say again, in high-income countries, but 1% is very, very little to be able to respond of our enormous need, which we know is all increasing. Thank you. So you've mentioned this 1%, Erminia, and I just wanted to kind of explore further. What effects does a lack of mental health treatment and rising numbers of people with mental health disorders have on lower-middle-income countries? I think we've mentioned kind of the... Mm linked to economic progress but say socially economically could you expand further but let me give you an, an example because, you know, so I, I do I apply the research, so I work in the field. And something I've been working a lot in the last 20 years, I'm very passionate about, is prevention of suicide. Um, now, so suicide is, is, is a major global health problem. So it is actually one of the main uh, causes of death in many population in the countries where I work. We know in, in low-income countries, actually, is the leading co- cause of death in young people. So we talk about countries where are in development, where there is a lot going on, a you know, financial kind of aspect in terms of technology technology and science, um, and these are countries where the new generation basically are, are taking their life, where people are dying not because of HIV, obviously also for HIV, also for tuberculosis, but that's not the key cause of that. The key cause actually is suicide. Now, I work in some of these countries, I just came back from Indonesia, like last week, and I also work in countries like like Philippines, and Southeast Asia, you know, 39% of suicide actually happen in, in these areas, and, and this is the leading cause of that in young people, and there is basically nothing going on. There is nothing available for people who are at risk of suicide. People who actually are declaring they've got suicide ideation. There are some kind of small charity and people with a lot of passion that are doing, providing some services, but with very little means. So they're doing amazing work with very little means. And you will expect a country where people are killing themselves, with a new generation, which is the future of this country, of any country, has taken their own life. There will be services, basic services to be able to provide on a different perspective, not only about services, very important to understand. Mental health services are not just about about clinicians and about mental health professionals being sitting in an in a office and somebody going to take an appointment. That's only one little aspect as far as I'm concerned, as far as I believe, of mental health. It's about being able in the community to provide all sorts of services that actually can respond to people who are struggling with their mental health issues. Thank you. So, Daniela, kind of, kind of leading on from that and thinking about the link between poverty and mental health, how are mental health conditions experienced on a day-to-day basis differently in developing countries to, say, the UK? And we've obviously mentioned services, but are there 
any additional challenges that people may face in developing countries? So I think people in low and middle income countries don't experience mental health problems differently. What happens is they may describe their symptoms differently. So they may use different terms, for example, for depression. Um, but this doesn't mean that diagnostic categories don't apply. They do. Um, we see that certain categories, for example, of mental disorders, like, for example, um, eating disorders are less prevalent in low and middle income countries. They do occur, but not at the same scale as in high, inco as in high income countries. So coming back to your question, I think um, people in low and middle income countries, they face specific challenges. First of all, um, first of all, and this is coming back to Aminia, what um, Aminia has said, there's a large treatment gap in mental health care, which is defined as the difference between the number of people um, needing treatment and um, the number of people receiving treatment. And um, as mentioned before, the treatment gap is really high in low and middle income countries with 90% of people receiving no treatment at all. And this is because of several reasons. So firstly, there are supply reasons. So health systems are frail and there are no services, no treatment offered in the community or in primary health care. And there are no health professionals delivering the services to the people um, in need. Just to give you an example, and I think it's a really interesting one, there are more Indian psychiatrists working in the UK as in, whole of in, as in the whole of India. So the total number of Indian psychiatrists is, I think, around uh, 3,500 in India, covering a population of more than 1 billion people. So this leads, obviously, to mental health um, or mental disorders not being recognized in, in, in the community and also not in primary health care because uh, GPs are, no, are also receiving no, um, no training. But there are also demand reasons, i.e. people not demanding or seeking service because of the stigma and the discrimination, i.e. If, if there were services, people don't seek them because um, they, they are afraid of what other people might um, think about them. So um, we know that the treatment gap in low and middle income countries is tremendous, but I just want to highlight that um, even in the UK, the distribution and access of services is, could be greatly improved. And I'm just thinking about the treatment for perinatal depression, which is depression occurring after childbirth or within the first year postpartum, i.e. within the first um, year after giving birth. And it's essentially a postcode lottery in the UK. So access to treatment really depends on where you live. So some people have to drive for 90 minutes or more to access a service, which is also unacceptable. I think it's a very important point. I think when you look about mental health, we often see this as a, as a medical kind of issue, something which fits within a medical system. But there is so much about mental health from actually the way we experience, I believe, uh, um, mental health to the way it is kind of diagnosed to actually the response we have to it is very much linked to issues about injustice, discrimination, inequalities, which are very important concerns in governmental health. Because I just mentioned, we know some people, in, 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 even in high-income countries like UK, we know Caribbeans, for example, are much more subject to, to be, uh, basically be in, uh, within hospitals without their will in some way. So there, is, there are people who actually are more subject to discrimination, to racism within uh, countries. Um, the access to, to mental health care is not equal. 
depends who you are, where you live, the education level. Also, the gender very much has, has an impact. And in some countries, also has an impact which kind of particular ethnicity you belong to, which kind of particular language do you speak, maybe which kind of caste you are part of, and all of that. So mental health does sit within a social, cultural, political context, which impacts everything to do with mental health. And the kind of stigma that we kind of see and we talk about in terms of population base, so people not accessing services, you know, is also present, I believe, in governments, not funding mental health as much as they fund other health issues. So there's not, no stigma. For me, that is stigma. Why, why there is no more money going in if we got evidence telling us how many of us, you know, how many of us in our own family actually struggle at some point in life? How is it possible that there is not more funding going in it? And when there is funding going for it, there is mainly only about clinical direct work, maybe supporting psychiatrists, to kind of be, being more psychiatrists, more psychologists, very important, but we know it's limited. There is things actually in part mental health which have to do with injustice. The, 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 the disaster we're seeing in our cities, in London, for example, the kind of issues we face on a daily basis, they have an impact on people's mental health. The response to that is also a response in terms of making people's life more just, more equal, giving people opportunities. And that's a kind of, that's a kind of discourse that we don't hear much within mental health. So I think it's very important to address, especially with the public understanding, it's not only about a medical issue, it's something which has to do with societies. And it is ultimately our right, our right to be a full, complete human being, you know, full potential. Thank you. So following on from this idea of stigma and cultural context, Minya, in 2014, you directed a documentary project called Breaking the Chain, which looked at human rights violations against people with mental illness and followed a team of health workers and volunteers who worked with people who had been physically restrained, kept in animal cages or shackled due to the fact that they had a mental health condition. Could you tell us a bit more about how mental health is understood in Indonesia and how beliefs in superstition, possession and witchcraft may influence how people with mental health conditions seek help in different areas of the world? Sure. Well, I mean, not only in Indonesia, actually, in many parts of the world, and if you actually look at the history of psychiatry, even also in, in a kind of Western society, the understanding of mental health has always been encompassed with beliefs around uh, religious or spiritual kind of belief, something which belongs to a non-materialistic world. In fact, if we look, go to see at the root of psychology, for example, it comes from the understanding of the soul. Now, again, because mental health has become much more of a biomedical issue, sadly, in the, in the last decades, then the kind of spiritual understanding... Uh, um, of, of mental health, mental illness kind of has uh, not been much taken into consideration within uh, Western mental health systems. But in many societies, people understanding of, of what actually happening to a person, which will be described as a mental ill person, it is actually understood in terms of spiritual belief, religious belief, for example, possessions. The name of the possession will be different in Indonesia between uh, from Ghana, where I also try to do some work at the moment. Uh, like in Indonesia, they talk about gene, you know, this kind of idea of, of I mean, this kind of possession by a gene, and the part of it will be like in, in a Christianity will be the devil, but the concept is very similar. There is an explanation which belongs to something which is beyond human. And, and these things are seen as real, and they are seen as having impact to, in, in terms of people's uh, manifestation of, of a possible men mental health issues and understanding. That means that there is a number of people respond to somebody who might be behaving in a way which we will see as a mental uh, health problems with the practices which can be um, 
like exorcism, which can be about to try to maybe using prey as a way of, of uh, getting the devil of the gene uh, out to the person, can be also some kind of practices which, which can be seen as abusive in terms of ultimately uh, kind of restrain people's freedom. So in the country where I work, which I was mentioning, Indonesia, I just came back from there, I mentioned last week, uh, where sadly I'm still faced with the same issues we are aware of for many years, which is people with uh, mental health uh, issues being basically chained uh, like animals, uh, putting in shackles and uh, being inside cages. Now, Breaking the Chains, a documentary I made a few years ago in collaboration with uh, uh, Melbourne University, where I was based for the last uh, 10 years before moving to UK. And uh, a documentary which explored the issue of chaining and restraint, which happens not only in Indonesia, happens in many low-income countries, in Africa and Asia, and in some way, we know, some form of restraint, maybe chemical, actually happen also within high-income countries. So this issue about human rights uh, uh, violations on mental ill happens worldwide. Very important to point this out. It's not something only about developing, so-called developing countries, but definitely the, the forms it takes in these countries is different because it's very basic in terms of physically. Because we're talking about families that are very poor, where basically they have no means to look after the person uh, in a daily basis. They have to be farmers going in the field, so they have to resort to using realistically physical containment so people might be chained. And partially this also is seen sometimes as a way, as a form of treatment. Because then people are subjected to different kind of treatment, often by healers who will use whatever they have in their disposition to try to free the person from uh, from uh, the whatever is happening to them. So this is something, as I mentioned, happens in many countries. And but we know that partially this is because there is no much alternative. So 85% of people or 90% of people in low-income countries don't have access to other services. M- most most of uh, of the care actually does happen in the end of spiritual healers, faith-based healers, traditional healers. This is, this, is up, this is something we know about Africa, about Asia, about South America for sure. And the thing is we actually are not going to be able to respond uh, to this kind of need to using mental health professionals. We will never have enough mental health professionals. Partially, you know, there, maybe there is something about also understanding mental health in terms of, of some kind of spiritual or religious aspect of it. So that's why we understand it's very important in this country to try to collaborate with traditional healers, faith-based healers, in terms of, of providing also some kind of more adequate response. So in Breaking the Chain, I basically show this. I show about how people from the community try to, to find possible way to help people who are physically Restraint, uh, to basically be free and receive some kind of treatment, but also the difficulty about providing treatment in countries like Indonesia, where there is very little available and mainly happens within hospital, although things are changing in these countries and things are actually happening and primary care is definitely taking much more uh, uh, a role, but there is need of more basically money and resources for things to drastically change. Thank you. And Daniela, you're currently involved in a project called Strengths, which focuses on the post-traumatic stress disorder experienced by Syrian refugees. So in a recent report, Save the Children have stated that more than 70% of children in Syria display symptoms of PTSD. Are mental health issues experienced differently in development and humanitarian aid situations? And what effects do man-made and natural disasters in lower middle income countries such as conflict, displacement, hurricanes, epidemics such as Ebola, famine, um, what effects do they have on how treatment can and is received? So, yes, so the project I'm currently um, working on addresses, as you said, the mental health problems of Syrian refugees and how mental health 
services can be best can be best delivered in host countries. And when when I say host countries, I refer to the major European countries, which have taken in a large proportion of Syrian refugees, like Germany, for example, but also Lebanon, which now hosts more Syrian refugees as the whole of Europe. So, and you can only imagine that a health system no matter how well it performs, is put under enormous pressure when there's a large influx um, of people um, requiring to access services. So the aim of our project is basically to, to, to scale up a low-intensity psychological intervention, which then can be delivered by non-specialists, in our case, um, p um, Syrian refugees themselves, who get trained on the... Um, intervention and who also receive um, supervision from a mental health expert. So coming back to your question, I think not all refugees are traumatized and are in need of counseling. Many people show resilience, which is the ability to cope relatively well after situations of adversity. However, there is a proportion of um, refugees who need um, who ha who have mental health problems and who need um, counseling but it's important to highlight that the this encompasses far more than post-traumatic stress disorders because we need to consider pre-existing problems like severe mental disorders or alcohol use disorders specific emergency induced problems like for example grief but also humanitarian aid related problems um, for example um, anxiety due to the due to the lack of information um, about food distribution so um, emergencies and disasters such as the ones you mentioned they erode normally protective um, support systems in the community and they tend to amplify pre-existing problems of social justice in and inequality. So, for example, natural disasters such as floods or the hurricane in um, Haiti, they typically have a disproportionate impact on poor people who may be living in dangerous places or in, in poor housing. So they may have trouble in accessing health services, which may have been already weak or um, rendered dysfunctional by crisis situations. So, and in this case, it's crucial that mental health is incorporated um, as part of the humanitarian and development response, and that a layered system of support um, is offered. So this usually starts with the provision of basic services, such as food, water, and sanitation, which is then followed by strengthening um, family and um, community support systems before providing psychological first aid and basic mental health care in the community. So some people won't benefit um, from any of the previous steps. And in this case, um, it's um, needed that those people are referred to specialist health care um, if this is available. And finally, I'd like to kind of look forward. Um, so promoting mental health and well-being has been included in the 2015 Sustainable Development Agenda. And there have been some quite unique initiatives reported in the media lately, such as the Zimbabwe Friendship Bench, mindfulness classes in refugee camps. So how exactly do you measure and evaluate the progress of mental health treatment? Do you think progress is being made? And finally, what challenges does the future hold for global mental health? 
So, yeah, I think that's right. There are many um, mental health interventions, but we need to be careful because we are only interested in the effective and cost-effective interventions, which do not do any harm. Um, so the Zimbabwe Friendship Bench is a great example. It aims to reduce the treatment gap for depression. So patients get um, are diagnosed in primary health care, and then they receive um, individual problem-solving therapy from a trained lay healthcare worker on a bench. So I think the most rigorous way of um, determining whether a cause-effect relationship exists between treatment and uh, outcome is doing a randomized controlled trial. So people are allocated at random in two different groups. So one of the group receives the intervention and the other group is the standard of comparison or the control group. So the control group may be standard practice um, or no intervention at all, although this is rare in, 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 in mental health. So, of course, there are examples uh, where it's not ethical to randomize people and then other forms of study designs need to be chosen to evaluate mental health treatment. So I think we have achieved a lot in the past 10 years and we finally have managed to put mental health on the global development agenda but there's still a long way to go i think we need to advance um, prevention and also implementation of early interventions especially for youth we need to build human resource capacity in countries where there are no health professionals um, and we also need to expand access to care and this is the latter is a key point because we have evidence-based interventions, but the issue really is that we need to scale up those interventions to make them available to the wider population in need. And we are facing barriers of scaling up services, um, which we need to tackle such, um, such, for example, financial constraints, but also lack of political will um, and decision-making, which are based on politics rather than science. I do believe it's not all about specialists. It's not about only clinicians providing kind of, of, of a direct mental health care. It's much broader than that. It is also a, a political, a social kind of, of issue, and that's very important to kind of to address in that way. And it's not only in developing countries where I work, it's in every society. Uh, so mental health, it is an issue, it's real. Anybody of us listening to this radio now, this, uh, this podcast, Everybody will have other experience at some point in their life, a mental health issue. Somebody in their family will have done that. If they have not yet, probably they will in the future. So how do we make people more able to recognize mental health issues, to respond to them uh, in some way, and, and to be able to connect to, to different kinds of services, different kinds of possibilities. Like a, a volunteer in London in a great place called the Maytree Respite Center. It's a center for prevention of suicide. It's not supported by government. Surprise, surprise. It's mainly volunteer like myself who give their time uh, to help people who are at risk of suicide is a house you work in a house is a house with a kitchen nice bathrooms is blue you know it doesn't look like a a, a, a dry uh, sterile uh, unwelcoming hospital and the people are there to kind of provide help and make you feel that you can uh, disclose what you are feeling and you are not being judged and you're being supported. So we need to provide a spectrum of services that affect people at different level, individual and community. And, and, uh, and keeping in mind issues mentioned before about discrimination, injustice and, and, uh, and inequalities, which unfortunately impact our mental health. Thank you. I think that's a, quite an impacting note to end on. So thank you for listening to the Development Matters podcast and thank you to Daniela and Arminia for sharing their thoughts and insights with us today. 
If you want to know more and listen to previous podcasts in the series, please visit the LIDC website, which is www.lidc.org.uk. Thank you.